welcome to episode 93 of the Daniel Yoris podcast with today's guest, Clayton Kim. Let's go. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Joined here today by Clayton Kim. Clayton, thanks for being here, man. I appreciate your time. Yeah, very glad to be here. How do you introduce yourself? I've met you as someone who does many things, a, a polymath, if you will, as a circus performer, a rugby player, a data scientist, a, a, an AI engineer. How do you introduce yourself? How do you describe what it is that you do? Well, at the end of the day, um, at my very core, I'm a problem solver. <clears throat> and so whether those problems are across human health and performance, AI and data engineering, or like in sport, um, yeah, at the end of the day, we are doing the exact same things, just across different modalities, slightly different disciplines. Um, but I just like to solve problems, solve puzzles, and yeah, found myself doing it across a few different spaces. That makes a lot of sense when you when you say it like that. Is the broader term of problem solving one definition of? Uh, I'm sure if, if you're not familiar with combat sports, Joe Rogan has always described combat sports as high level problem solving with dire physical consequences. And I've always thought that that's such yeah. an incredible definition, probably not all that different from like circus performing. If you mess up, there can be some pretty big accidents and some definitely dire physical consequences, right? Yeah, it's true. I was training last night, uh, probably the least effective way to train, which is I saw a friend of mine do this move on Instagram and I was like, oh, I wonder if I can do that. <laughs> and then I just basically tunnel vision my way into it for about an hour and a half. And I have a bunch of bruises and burns to show for it and had to like, you know, tape my fingernails back together to continue training. But at the end of it, got to it, figured out like what were the key things necessary to make that move possible and uh, figured it out. So yeah, some occasional dire consequences, but nothing too bad. The ability to do that comes with years and years of training, right? It's not like someone like me who's never done circus training or acrobatics or gymnastics of any kind see that video that you posted on Instagram and be like, oh, I'm going to go try that. If I tried that, it would be <clears throat> disastrous, right? But like if someone, if I see someone doing a, a lift with a barbell lift in the gym, <clears throat> I understand how to move my body and how to work with the barbell that I can just go try and figure that out by just quote unquote playing around similar to the way that you, after years and years of training, can just see something and try and figure out how to do it. Yeah. And some of that is understanding, like, what are the limits of your physical capacity? Like, I understand that, like, I am strong enough. So the move starts off with doing a handstand push up while on the straps. So you're on this, like, freestanding thing. It's like basically like doing a handstand push up on the rings. And, like, for a lot of people, like, if you can't do a handstand push up or handstand push up on rings, like, that's just straight up not going to happen. <laughs> but there are other aspects of that where, like, maybe there's a key difference in a move for a barbell lift that might be, like, where. Uh, the bar is when I start my final extension on a snatch or like how to balance the bar where my hand head width is. Um, and either way, even if you can't get to like that exact move that day, like the way that you get there across training sessions, what are the things that you need to work on? Like, you know, it's effectively the same. Like you go from point A to point B and you can figure out like what is the most efficient path to get there? How did you come up with all of this like and your uh, your upbringing how did you start to merge like the data and all the physical training what was your your upbringing through sport and through education um i think a lot of it was just like i built a lot of stuff as a kid um the tools you kind of have available to you as a kid are like you know fairly basic start off with legos then maybe like you know tear apart some electronics put them back together um, all the way to like now, like I'm doing the same thing where like I'm building a spectroscope for or a spectrometer for measuring, um, light blockage from, uh, light blocking glasses. 
and every manufacturer has slightly different specs on what their lenses do. And like, you know what, instead of sending this to a lab and getting it all done, like, you know, having across all these manufacturers, we get super expensive, like, cool. We just built a spectrometer, figured out like, what are the core components of that? How do you make it work? Building some of the software, the hardware might be a little janky because I figured out like the easiest way to make this thing is to take, um, uh, they make this foam for, um, like carvers, like this carving foam. And you could just like poke out the shapes you need and like, cool, I'm just going to like stuff all these electronics into that. Is that what all the, uh, stuff behind you is? And if anyone's watching the video, there's a lot of things that look like I don't understand what they are behind Clayton. Is that what all that is in those notes? Uh, yeah, some of it, uh, for the spectrometer. <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's on the other side of the board, but, um, the way data kind of came into this was I wanted a way of extending the capacity of human performance. And that could be done across multiple ways. Um, that could be either done like physically, like you've seen like marathon times go down over the course of years. And that comes as a function of, you know, better training, better nutrition, um, better technology in the shoes, but then also like better genetic selection. Um, and when you look across like all these sports, you see like records being shattered all the time. Like a lot of it is based around technology and maybe not like <clears throat> technology that is on the body, but technology kind of through the chain of like athlete selection training and like kind of the available modalities. So like the AI stuff falls very neatly into that of how do I extend the capabilities of humans, not just within the realm of physical activity, but like in our capacity for creativity and our capacity for abstract thinking and our capacity for just dealing with tasks that we don't want to do so that we could focus our attention to things that are of high value. Right. As, as a human species, as we become more educated or more knowledgeable about all of the things, just like a, you know, a, a five foot tall person is highly, highly unlikely to make the NBA. Someone who is not genetically predisposed to creativity is not likely to become a world renowned artist. And all of the disciplines will become more and more specialized and understanding how to select for those things. It seems like incredibly difficult for me in identifying, you know, what the things are that make someone more creative or make someone taller, which may have a, a more clear genetic component. But, you know, this is where this is why much smarter people than myself, like you, <laughs> are working on these things. Yeah, but also it's there's no like real limitation. So like to me, almost everybody is capable of like a two X body weight deadlift with like if you train them somewhat optimally, like anyone with hard work could kind of get there. Yeah. And I think like Tim Ferriss talks about this a lot of like the effort it takes to get to a world-class level in some discipline isn't that high. You just have to be more willing to like suck at it for longer than like most of humanity which isn't that high. Like most people give up on things pretty easily and to get to the top 1% of like any specific discipline, like is not out of the realm of possibility for a lot of people. <clears throat> and for like any individual across all the disciplines that they might be interested in, like they could probably get to world-class in something. That does make sense. I, we've all got unique things that we would be better at or more likely to, maybe it's more that number no, not, not that we're better at it, but we're more likely to be willing to suck at it for longer. And so I might not be willing to go through 
the, the, the suck of becoming a data scientist, but I may be more willing to go through the suck of becoming exceptional at something else. Is there what would mm-hmm. possibly lead to that though? Because that seems like it's just willingness to push through and, and that is the similarity, but the, the thing that you're applying it to is different. What do you think is, is underneath that? I mean, part of it is grit. So like you said, the, the willingness to suck is like a definitely a big piece of it, but the way you get there has a lot to do with it. Like the way you can optimize training, um, you know, if you're just going to go to the gym and just like <clears throat> pull on some machines, like you're not going to really get there. But if somebody that I trust and is an expert in the topic gives me a spreadsheet to follow and I do that over the course of the year, like I will make a lot more progress than someone who like, you know, does it in a very unstructured way. And the real difficulty comes in finding that structure and finding something that both works for you and is like within the realm of like effective. That is the real hard part. This is a, this is a good plug for just coaching plug myself there, but, (laughs) but you're right. And it, it does. One thing that I also often talk about that you've alluded to is, and it pains me to admit this, that if you just work hard enough for long enough, like you can get in shape. Having a two times body weight deadlift is great. And and most people couldn't do it, but by all strength measures, it's not all that impressive. And it's not like super crazy to be able to do that. That's not some extreme strong man or strong woman to be able to do that. But if you just do stuff and avoid injury somehow hard enough for long enough, you will get there. What doing things the right way is what's going to get you to become elite at that thing or get to that, you know, slowly, slightly above average, a little bit faster and maybe without less injury. Does that probably apply to most other things as well? Yeah, absolutely. Like the real question becomes like, can you race the clock before like either get too old or like too injured or something to, to really achieve that. That and I find that like, you have to be careful learning from experts and that like, are they an expert because they have applied a lot of good fundamentals to it? Or are they an expert because they were a genetic freak that were selected as children to do this thing? Like, um, I have one artist that would come in here and she would just like, without warming up, just her warm up was to get on my handstand canes and just like hop into a one arm handstand. <laughs> and she's been doing that since she was like four years old. And if you ask her how to do that, she'd be like, oh, no, you just like get into a handstand, just lean over and it's fine. It's like, that is absolutely not the case. Most people learning a one arm handstand, like from the point that you could do at least like 30 seconds to a minute, it'll take about two years of consistent practice to like get to a good one arm. And so, you know, the people who are good at it aren't necessarily good teachers. I find that the best teachers are the people who like learned as an adult and like sucked at it for a while and found the tricks around sucking at it to to get there versus someone who's like already been good at this and is naturally just talented. Sport is probably one of the best uh, examples of this. We see tons of incredible players in, across all sports who then become coaches after their careers. And like, they're not that great coaches because they just, they yeah. just did it. Why did Wayne Gretzky do the things he did the way that he did them? He probably doesn't even really know why he just, it just happened. And it was just some innate something or other due to his training, due to all of his life experience that added up to him, you know, turning left instead of turning right. And that resulted in, you know, whatever it resulted in. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's also the same across like academics and for sure in sports, but in academics as well, someone who just, we've all met people in class who just, they just get math. I think that's an easy one, Mm -hmm. right? They just, it just clicks. The teacher says it and like, yep. Okay. Got it. 
And then there's other people who are like, I have no idea what's going on. It's like the teacher speaking a different language. And, yeah. uh, and, and that can be difficult. And those people are oftentimes less good at teaching it, but better at executing the actual thing. And that's yeah, you know, not something you could really train. Yeah, well, like the ability to teach, I think, is something highly trainable. Um, a lot of people like don't like teaching because they get frustrated that their students like aren't getting their communication style. But a good teacher knows how to communicate at the level of the the student and also can modulate that across different learning styles and different like, you know, different skill levels. Um a lot of times when people have success with a coach, it's because those two things happen to be aligned mm. and it might not work for a third person there. And so, you know, that coach selection is important. Either like you get lucky or luck, like you find the person that speaks your language or you get someone that can speak across languages. And I think the best coaches are the ones that can adapt to the student and the ones that can like take a look at them, understand like the pros and cons of what's going on, explain that and offer the student choices as to how they tackle that problem. So in my discipline, aerial straps, like for the longest time that was taught a very like traditionally Russian way of this is the form, this is how you do the thing. And this is how it looks every time. Um, when I teach it and the way my coach taught it is like, this is the prototype of the move. And when you like shift your leg this way, this is what happens. And when you shift your arm this way, this is what happens. And it like taught me what the trade-offs are because it allowed me to select like different aesthetics or made certain parts of that move easier versus harder because like my body's different than most aerialists in that like I came from rugby and like, you know, I like still deadlift over 500 pounds and like my ass is like far too heavy to do a lot of the things that I'm doing. And so like, the th ways that I have to go across some of these moves just like has to be different than like some 150 pound former gymnast that like can casually get into an iron cross would do. Yeah. Understanding the principles of what you're doing is a very complicated thing. And we see this across fitness a lot of the times and even like more so I think in regular people, you know, general population where you'll see someone online and be like, Oh, they do it this way. And some guy who's, you know, 8% body fat and 240 pounds. And it's like, Oh, well he does it that way. It's like, well, you have to understand that like, you are not, you are not that guy. Understand the principle yeah. of the way that he's doing what he's doing. And then you have to try and figure out how to apply that to yourself. Now that might take a quite a bit of knowledge and anatomy and biomechanics and nutrition and all of these things. But you have to understand at a base level that you can't just copy and paste what other people do because it doesn't necessarily work that way. You have to understand the principle of what they're doing. And this is where, yeah. you know, like you said, good, good coaches come in and always brings things back to the, the individualization of things, which I would believe is where some of the AI work that you do kind of comes into this, where it takes those principles and then spits it back out for a person who doesn't need to understand all the underlying uh, things that are happening there. Yeah. Exactly. You can do that individualization at scale at a more rapid clip than maybe a human coach can, or at least help fill in the gaps. For sure at a more widespread clip, right? Like if I, if yeah. I make a video or this podcast, we can speak in general terms, but to someone who's listening, like you and I can't just say something that we know for sure will be directly related to one specific listener, right? We might say something yeah. that's related to me or related to you, but to everyone, we can just make kind of generalizations and go from there. But some sort of AI framework, and and if you could explain maybe a little bit how more more of how this would work, 
would be able to kind of like let them input <clears throat> their data or their lifestyle, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Let me know what they input and then and then outputs what's more specific to them. Yeah. And that's sort of the approach that we take at Founds where you see a lot of these companies kind of come out there and say like one blood test and tells mm-hmm. can tell you exactly what you need to like look, feel and perform. Like, you know, you t- your genome tells you exactly what you ha- what diet you need to eat. Your like muscle uh, genetics tell you exactly the type of training you need to do. And that's just like straight up not true. There are dozens, if not thousands of other factors involved, including your lifestyle and like just down to like the things you like and what motivate you. Um, so the thing that we specialize in is not necessarily having the exact like, you know, blood test to supplement protocol or like know genome tests to um, workout protocol it's that experimentation that trial and error all improvement requires some aspect of trial and error like when i started lifting i started with um starting strength and then i went to uh wendler and then like you know i even tried like a small love cycle actually did three small love cycles and i will never do one again but like those things happen to work for me along the way like a lot of things didn't work or certain things like stopped working, like five by five eventually stopped working for me after my squat got heavy enough. Um, small love, like I like physically couldn't bring myself to do any more of that after like that second cycle. <clears throat> so, you know, that the hard part is first figuring out like what you should do, right? Like it could either be like my buddy telling me to like try the cycle. It can be like me seeing in a book. It could be like me hearing about it in a podcast or having a coach tell me what I need to be doing from there. Like, how do I like actually do this? Like just because I'm given a workout program doesn't mean like I have everything I need to go. Like, what am I supposed to eat beforehand? Um, I like to train at six in the morning. So like, how do I like warm up and prepare my body so that I don't like blow out my back trying to deadlift too heavy at six in the morning? Um, how do I evaluate whether or not it's working? Like, am I seeing progress fast enough? Me seeing progress, like jumping from a like 500 to a 510 deadlift is like much more significant than me jumping from like 145 to like 185 because like, you know, those newbie gains are a lot easier. Um, so that evaluation is hard. And then from there, like, okay, I've done a cycle, I've evaluated, like, where do I go from there? Do I double down on it? Do I switch to something else? Do I like do a deload week and just do the exact same thing? And so like all that requires some amount of trial and error. And that's the part that we really emphasize and have expertise in is shortening that path of trial and error. Just given the information that we have about you, what are the things that are most likely to work? Okay. From there, how do we integrate that into your life, your preferences, um, your desires and goals? What modifications do we need to make, et cetera? Um, how do we measure if that's working or not? Like some people might get frustrated that they might not see like huge gains, but like you might not be at a point where you well, should expect huge gains. And then what do you do from there? And so that is what the FAT methodology is. And that is what we build our AIs around, not just point solutions A to B, but optimizing your way to A to B. I feel like it would be quite easy and and almost fake and a disservice to be able to just say like 
one test, one questionnaire, one blood test, one whatever, and then here's your answer. Because yeah. across a big enough sample size, you, you will have a number of people that that is successful for, and a number of people who it's not successful for. And you know, you only post the positive <clears throat> testimonials and don't talk about the negative ones. Like we see this a lot in, in yeah. fitness, of course. There's a lot of big name fitness influencers out there whose programming and methodology is not even necessarily that it's bad. It's just average. It's wildly mm-hmm. average. And if they get enough people to get excited about it and stick to the program and like do my thing and live like me, then people will do it. And and some number of people who will be drawn to that anyways will be very successful with that. And it looks like, wow, this guy or this girl is, uh, you know, the cream of the crop. They, they know everything about fitness. It's like, well, you know, across a hundred thousand people, if you can get that many people to, to sign up and pay attention, yeah, you're going to have some amazing transformations just due to chance. Yep. But how do we make it, you know, closer to a hundred percent of the people that are actually having success. And this is where like the individual approach is, is unmatched. It's just not as scalable to, you know, every single person have one coach who's like very dialed into what they're doing and very knowledgeable and has the time, like every single person in the planet would need a a coach for your fitness, for your nutrition, for your, your workplace performance, for your, you know, the skills of your actual job, whatever that job is and how to be a parent. And it would, it would be endless. We'd all just be coaching everyone on coaching everything. And that's, you know, (laughs) not, not, not possible. I don't think. Um, but this is how we, you know, start to cut through the noise. So then building off this, how do you go about assessing someone for the first time? Someone approaches uh, you or or Fount and says, Hey, um, I'm, I'm in, what do you gather from that person uh, up front? So the first thing is ascertaining, like, how did they get here? Hmm. Um, Part of that is giving them some wearables so that we understand, like, what is their sleep architecture looking like right now? How much activity are they doing? Um, taking a very comprehensive blood panel. Um, we do take, like, a lot of blood. It's not, like, a crazy amount, but we, <laughs> we take a lot of blood. And we, like, you know, our blood tests the end-all be-all of answers? No, but, like, we want to know where you are at right as now. Much, as much information as possible. Yeah. Uh, we also do like a movement assessment because a lot of these problems come from like just habits and movement. Like, are you like just hunching forward? Do you have text neck? Like, is that causing some of your migraines? Who knows? It's important to like ascertain that. But people ask us like, if you could only choose one, what would that be? That would be the interview. So mm-hmm. we put people through like a pretty comprehensive lifestyle intake interview where we understand the goals, things that have tried in the past. Um, you know, like any symptoms or like pains that they're pain points that they're experiencing. And that tells me a lot more about them than like, you know, any blood test ever could. Obviously, I prefer to have both so that I could like, you know, dive into what might be the root cause of these things that they report. But a lot of it just comes down to like, what is it about their lives that got them to where they are today? And we use that to establish a baseline and then the first set of things that you would try, like the things that are most likely to work, things that have worked for the most other people that come from these same circumstances. And then from there, we have a new set of data points like, okay, this thing worked, this thing didn't work. We know that people who responded well to this also tend to respond well to this other thing or the opposite or vice versa. And so... Um, we have a very like data centric approach, but still highly personalized in that there is still a human that is overseeing everything and guiding you through the way, uh, like along the way. This sounds to me like it's, you're doing a very good job of hitting that, that fine line between optimal and perfection, like asking someone to live 
perfectly, sleep at exactly the same time at your room at exactly this temperature and, and, and create these exact conditions in your entire life is just, it would be great if that was possible, but you know, it's, yeah. it's not possible because we don't live in a laboratory. We, we're humans and we have all kinds of things that are going on and tons of variables that are uncontrollable. And so it's like, well, okay, maybe we can't eat exactly, uh, you know, 2,137 calories today, but like, can we eat yeah. less than we did yesterday if weight loss is the goal? Yeah, maybe. Okay. Can we take yeah. out the chocolate chip cookies? Can we eat one cookie instead of three cookies? Okay, maybe that's a good place to start. And then you just yeah. can continue to build on those habits. Yeah, and like diet, um, the extent to which you have to comply to a diet and like what is harmful versus not, it kind of depends on the individual and goals. Like if I'm trying to get on, win Mr. Olympia, like I'm going to have to be a lot more compliant than someone who's trying to like not get smoked by his buddies on a weekend bike ride. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And understanding that is really important because you need to give people achievable goals. You need to give people wins and you need to develop those habits along the way. And a large part of being a good coach and a good teacher is serving those wins at the right cadence and understanding like what is actually necessary for this person to reach their goals. Yeah, like most people, like they hear like all these things that like, you know, podcasters or influencers say that they should be doing and they try to integrate all of them and then they like flame out rather quickly a lot of the time. But if I said like, okay, this is like the one thing that'll make a difference for you and you see that win and you're like, okay, what else can I do? Like that is a very different behavioral component than like just try everything and like hope to God that it works. Like think- when I'm teaching straps like the main thing that i'm looking for is like what is the first smallest change that i can make to this person's form or what they're doing or even how they are thinking about it so that they see some progress like some measurable progress towards their goal right and i would bet that and again i've never taught taught anyone in straps or in anything related to uh aerials or, or circus training but it's like it would be a small thing that might not even make that much of a difference in words when you say it where it's like move your wrist to the right I don't know if that would make sense, but like move your wrist to the right. And it's like, okay, that will actually end up adjusting their entire shoulder position or where their chin points or something like that, that reconfigures their whole body. But if you tried to like explain all of those things, it's too many things, but just move the wrist. Okay. That's tangible. I can do that. Boom. That makes the change I need to make. Oh, okay. Now I get it. Now I get a win. And then you get that buy-in from like that coach client relationship as well, uh, which always helps of course. I think one thing that you, that you alluded to there was also understanding the cost of the thing that you think that you want. People will see a cover model and be like, okay, I want to look like that guy or that girl, super shredded, super strong, deadlifting, you know, however many hundreds of pounds. It's like, okay, you, you can do that because that's a human and you're a human and you might be able to do that, but this is what it takes to get there. You've got to do this amount of dieting, this amount of training, possibly this amount of drugs, this amount of other things. Are you willing to do that? If so, then okay, like, let's let's do it. If not, then we've got to adjust the goals. And that's probably a really yeah. important part of it as well. Oh, absolutely. The expectation setting, I think, is the hardest part of our coaching product. A lot of people come in like all of our coaches or almost all of our coaches are like ex-special operations soldiers, um, you know, a few circus performers and like, you know, um, pro level athletes and stuff. But like they want to be like that. Like, well, that comes at a steep, steep cost. Uh, and a lot of people like want that goal, but aren't willing to pay that price. And 
either way, even if you are trying to look like, you know, a champion bodybuilder, the, there is the logical next step in your progress and getting people to buy into that logical next step, regardless of whether or not you're going to like shoot for the moon or like, you know, stop somewhere more reasonable, like establishing that milestone and getting someone there or getting someone to believe that is kind of the hardest part. And at the end of the day, like a lot of this stuff is like kind of boring. So our most difficult thing is like, how do you establish habits around things that like might actually be boring, but super effective, right? Like no one wants to hear that eating right and sleeping eight and a half hours a night is like, is going to get you most of the way to the, towards your goal. <laughs> like, like I want a pill, like I want, I want something that no one else is doing because I want to feel smarter than them. Like that's what we see a lot of the time. And like, that just isn't a healthy way of looking at it. And how do you sell something that is like relatively boring? Yeah. <laughs> the person who, who figures out how to sell, eat healthy, walk every day and, uh, you know, sleep eight hours a night and do all the basic boring stuff is going to be the, if they figure out how to sell that, like on mass in an easy way that everyone buys into, like at the snap of the fingers that they will be the richest person the world has ever seen for sure. Because oh yeah, absolutely, it'll, <laughs> it'll be the biggest help, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so boring and that's what, you know, makes all this stuff very difficult. I have a very, very memorable uh, quote from a professor from my undergrad uh, education. And he said that if we don't, if we had a pill that could, you know, reduce blood pressure, help with weight control and blah, 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 all these like positive things, then uh, that would be great. But we don't. So until then, we'll just have to keep walking. I was like, wow, yeah, that's, (laughs) that's about right. But we don't have that pill. So we've just got to do these boring things. So trying to figure out a way to package them and, and to, you know, make them, make them doable. A big, concern from people is I don't have time. I don't have time to sleep eight hours yeah. a night. I don't have time to walk every day or go to the gym every day or stretch or w- whatever the thing is. And usually they have time for, for other things and it's about reprioritizing mm-hmm. or finding the thing that they're most likely to do. So if yeah, well, going for a walk every day seems like I don't have time for that, but I can increase my sleep time, then, then okay, maybe we can start there. And that's something that you would only be able to find out through an interview. I don't know that like a blood panel or something like that would be able to tell you that. Am I, am I correct in saying that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so for example, like I found that the optimal way for me to, or like the maximalist way for me to get the best sleep is I put on my light blocking glasses two hours before bed. I do a breath work session in my sauna and like, you know, I like journal, I like do all these like incredibly healthy things before I go to bed. Sometimes I have to work late. Actually, I'm going to start a lot of times I have to work late. And I also find that using my, um, like taking a hot shower, taking a few supplements and using my, um, what's that, uh, mattress chiller, like set pretty high, gives me maybe not as great sleep, but like as best as I can given my circumstances. And the only way to like really find that is finding, is like trying out different things and finding what actually fits into my life. Yeah. And, th- and that's also like a lot of things that you do, right? So people might, like you yeah. said, you know, a few different tools and, and products there that people might be like, okay, that's, first of all, that's already a lot of things. And, and maybe they're, you know, skeptical about these tools and the whole like biohacking thing. Cause it's like anything full of a bunch of nonsense, but what yeah. are, what are, maybe, maybe this is a good place to go. Then what are some of the things that you've seen that are like kind of popular that are a little bit nonsense versus some of the things that are actually useful, like the, the blocking, the, the light blocking glasses, the, the chili pad sleep thing. <clears throat> what, what are some of those? Um, 
kind of thing. Like, so a lot of them come down to like the more recent things within biohacking. So you see like the NMR, the metformin, the methylene blues of the world. And like a lot of times, like those are taken relatively blindly and without that much concern for safety. Like I have, my best friend is an anesthesiologist and she'll like go into like why you probably shouldn't do methylene blue. Like there's a lot of indication or counter contraindications to that. That like makes sense. And just because you see some biohacker influencer doing it, like doesn't mean that it like would work for you or is even safe for you. Um, I'm trying to think of the kind of other things. Like, I think it's just the blind application mm-hmm. of all these tools. Cause like any tool can be useful in some context. So I think ice baths and cold exposure is a really good example of this. Do you want to take an ice bath after every single workout? A lot of people do because they feel more hardcore that they're doing that. They feel like they're getting better recovery, but you're also blunting the natural inflammatory response that comes with resistance training and therefore reducing the adaptations that your body is gaining from that training session. So yeah, you might feel better, but you are developing less muscle, less strength, and you are canceling out a lot of the gains that you would otherwise have from your workout. And so that ice bath, post-workout ice bath, great tool if like I have to perform the next day. Like I have to play like a double header game and just need to like survive tomorrow. Perfect. You do your post-game ice bath. Okay, but I could actually take tomorrow off. Like, no, I do want to experience that inflammatory event and have my body adapt to that. And so the blind application of tools is like really where I have a problem. Like any tool potentially can be useful. Mm. The secret is finding what that context is for you and how like how to best effective or most effectively use it. That's probably one of the best ways that I've ever heard it said. It's just the blind application of things. Oh, so-and-so influencer, biohacker, podcaster, whoever did it. So therefore it must work. And without the consideration, I think a lot of times for all of the other things that that person does, some, you know, biohacker person or just whatever person who's, you know, very healthy in great shape. And then they start taking one. Here's a here's a little rant I'm gonna go on. I hear I see this a lot of the influencers and or, or things, and they say, "Oh, I've started taking this supplement, and it has like revolutionized my training, my whatever." But they've been you know at eight percent body fat, putting up big numbers in the gym for like ten years. And it's like, okay, but how are you, the listener, convinced that like that new thing that they're taking is what got them where where they are? They've just They've been that way for a while, and maybe this makes them 1% better, but had they not mm-hmm. been sleeping right, eating right, training right, doing all the things, would that thing really make a difference? It's Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't, but it's hard to say, and, and I think, again, it's it's just easier, much easier to take a pill, buy a new tool than it is to actually change your habits and your behavior. It's the hardest yeah. thing. Yeah. And that like habit and behavior formation, like that is where like great coaching and great teaching comes along. Like anyone can present you the tools, but it takes someone great to like, have you really bought into it to such that like you integrate into your life and you're willing to go through the suck, even with using that tool to get towards your goal. Yeah. The explanation of why you're doing what you're doing and the ability to answer that question with an answer that is more substantial than because I said so. (laughs) And, And this is where, again, the AI stuff, you know, like, you're presenting many options and say, okay, which one of these might be best for you? Which one seems reasonable, achievable, doable? Are you willing to do? Okay, let's go that route. And then we'll adjust the variables as we go from there. Yeah. And like, that's the challenge. That's the challenge I foresee the most with the AI tools is that 
a lot of the times like hiring a coach may not be the best knowledge or like, you know, they might not be the best coach, but having that like social accountability Mm. does incredible things for like compliance and just like the willingness to do something like I know what I'm doing in a gym. Like I've been doing this forever. Like I will still hire a coach because by giving somebody $500, like make sure that I do something like make sure that I follow the plan and like I do all the items on that spreadsheet. Some of the times when I'm designing my own programs, it's like, yeah, I'm like kind of tired today. I like tweaked my elbow. Like I'm just going to avoid these things and like, like it'll be fine. Or like I'm going to throw in some bicep curls because like I feel like it and summer's coming up. <laughs> and so, you know, having that external accountability helps a lot, but we want to make sure that that product is available and is accessible to people, even ones that like can't afford or like are unwilling to afford or buy a coach. And so, you know, we believe that knowledge should be accessible and there are services that you can have that like, you know, make things easier, that make things more convenient. But for those who are like intrinsically motivated and just lack the knowledge and tools, like we will absolutely want to just make that available to people. Yeah. And I guess it it is in a way, just because everything's available on Google, the problem is there's almost you know too much available on the internet. And so it's cutting through that noise that I think is really the the value uh, of a coach, whether it be a, an actual intelligent person or uh, some AI system of some sort that is cutting through the noise and trying to help you understand what is going to work for you. Because like you said, even with, even with you know yourself, half the battle is just doing the stuff. Like you can have the program. If you don't actually go do it, it doesn't help you, right? which you know, yeah. we, we have to, we've said that so many times, but like, it's very, very true. And again, people can do all the wrong things. If you just do it hard enough for long enough, you'll get some decent results in a, maybe a longer, a longer outlook, but cutting through that noise is really, is really the biggest value. And this is also why I think that coaching of all aspects, but especially with fitness and health is probably one of the things that will be much later taken over by technology versus something like accounting, which is just a numbers game. And if a computer can do it faster than a human, which they can, and with greater accuracy, then eventually that will just be taken out and it will just be more of the consultants who are giving advice rather than doing number crunching, where an AI system can also just spit out a program, exercises, sets, reps, all the all the variables. That's not that hard. That's not the biggest skill of coaching. The skill of coaching is getting that buy-in and answering the the, the offhanded variable questions, right? Yeah, like, like any... Any asshole with sufficient time to like make a decent workout generator. <laughs> yeah. Um, even like I've worked with like AI systems to do like movement analysis and like that's actually not that hard. The technology is there today for me to get like fairly precise joint angles on things. Um, but like the thing that like the machine can't teach is necessarily like how to teach the mind body connection or like understand like intentionality within a lift, like the intention to move a weight fast, like elicits a different motor unit response than like just trying to like lift the bar up. And that is something that's very difficult to get across to a trainee, but like the human coach can like better communicate that than necessarily just like, you know, like you move the bar up (laughs) or even you move the bar up at 0.6 meters per second. Like you have to understand like why the why and the basic principles. Right. So then I guess probably the most optimal solution as we go into the future with this is that the AI, the AI system does a lot of the groundwork. Maybe it writes the program and then a human comes in and tweaks that program ever so slightly for the individual and then answers all of the what if or but blank questions. Is that correct? Yeah. 
And I think like that's the kind of healthiest way of looking at any sort of like AI technology is that it's not there like to replace a human completely day one. It's like doesn't make a lot of sense. There's a lot of domain knowledge. There's a lot of like inter interhuman um, communication that like needs to happen for something to succeed. But if I could take the human that is the bottleneck in this case, a coach or um, like a teacher and help them leverage their time better by taking away busy work, by automating a lot of things that they would like normally do. That's just going to be the same all the time. Like that really lets them focus on the real human components. And that is like creativity, empathy, um, helping with like habit formation and that like social accountability. Like if my, if my coaches can like just spend all their time doing that and relatively little on like writing out, like how does this fit into your schedule and like making grocery lists, like that is very high value. Right. And that's how we scale the human element by uh, automating some of the parts of it that, that really could be, could be automated and then just answer questions in relation to it after yeah. that. Right. Or things like, Oh, my dog's sick this week. So I didn't, uh, I missed my training session today. Like, okay, great. And to explain yeah. that to, to an AI system, I guess, I don't, I don't know how it works, but I don't know. I don't know that it would be that easy. It would be easier to be like, okay, this is what happened with me. So then I can just, uh, as a human change that variable, but, uh, but you can still input it to an AI system. Like, I'm not sure what the limitations of it, of it really are, I guess. Maybe so that's the, that's the interesting part is that the limitations change over time. So the way a good, like software platform, AI or not is kind of d- developed is you do that first by like human extension of helping them leverage your time better. Over time, you find more and more things that you could kind of just trust out of the gate. Like, you know, relatively simple task, highly repetitive tasks. And you see that the human just kind of accepts that as the right answer, like 99% of the time. Over time, you find more and more things that the human just like can accept. And eventually, like over a long period of time, you find that the human can accept all of the solutions that the, the AI system gives and is only alerted around like edge cases. Hmm. And like, that's very much the goal of like slowly finding more and more real estate that the AI systems can take over and having a human there to be the backstop um, to ensure like either quality or kind of like, you know, make adjustments that just aren't tuned yet. And over time, like those adjustments can be learned as well. I see. So maybe uh, like a real world example of this could be that, um, you know, every uh, every three and a half weeks, you know, Bobby's uh, mother-in-law comes to visit and that makes him all stressed. And so he has like poor training every three and a half weeks. So what do we do about that? And so initially the human coach would have to go in and, and adjust something or just make a note of it. But eventually the AI system learns that, that that's happening, can predict the future based on past performance or past history, and then... And then uh, help us going forwards. And so in theory, it would get better over time and the human would be mm-hmm. less needed over time, still needed, but never, never 0%, but less and less needed over time. Does that sort of make sense? Is that yeah. an example that would like kind of fall into this? Yeah. And that's how you kind of scale from like 30 clients per person to like a thousand clients per person. If most of the time they don't have to look at it and they just like get escalated up, like something's gone like horribly wrong. Right. And like, we need to like, just like a human to look at, to 
what's going on. Right. And I guess, you know, even with regular coaching without any AI systems, most of the input is up front. Okay. Let's understand what's all the things about this person. And then after that, it's more like, okay, give them the program. You know, Susie doesn't like uh, this kind of exercise. So I just not going to use that exercise hurts her knee if we do this. So we just, we, we avoid that or do this to compensate for, you know, we do X to compensate for Y and, and we move forward. Her nutrition is good. She loses weight when she's at this kind of nutrition thing because we've tried, you know, four other things and the fifth one worked. So we try that. And when she wants to gain weight, we do this. And then it's just more maintenance along then. Like I think even if my clients who have had for a longer period of time, there's way less input as far as work for me because we already kind of, we've gone through the work of figuring out all those variables and it's just continuation of those things rather than trying to figure out new stuff about a brand new person who I come to, who comes to see me. Yeah. And then there's like kind of gaps along the way. So for example, like I modulate all my training with HRV and that kind of came from like, there are days where like I feel superhuman and therefore like can handle a little bit more volume and intensity. And there are days that I'm like a little bit run down and therefore should, you know, lower the intensity, maybe change up the exercises, like, you know, make adjustments to my program. And initially that's done like very, very manually. Like, you know, you could tune like, you know, reps and sets and weight and then eventually, like, that can be largely automatable. Like, if my clients are wearing, uh, like, an aura ring or a whoop, I see their HRV go down by a significant level. And I have structured their training program such that it is amenable to, um, you know, changing uh, sets, reps, weights, um, rest cadences, things like that. And over time, like, I don't even need to look at that adjustment. Like, I know that that adjustment can be made automatically. Right. What do you think about the, the, the self-fulfilling prophecy of something like using your HRV to determine uh, intensity in the gym? I know that like I've worn an aura ring for, for a long period of time. I'm pretty like, and I kind of know where the number is going to be when I wake up in the morning, but there are some days where, you know, a scheduled in my training, I'm hitting like a pretty heavy weight or a more intense workout. And I check my aura scores and my HRV was low and my sleep score wasn't that good, but I feel like amazing I feel 10 out of 10. And it's like, mm, if I convince myself, I guess I can kind of feel shitty and I should skip this workout. But sometimes it's like, well, today's the day. And if I don't do it today, then based on my life circumstance, like I'm not gonna be able to do it for like four days. And so I'm just going to get it done today. And it ends up being amazing. So yeah. What, what do you think about that? That self-fulfilling prophecy potential there for, for trusting the data a little bit too much. So uh, we see this a lot with clients um, and amongst my friends. Like I'm on several group chats of friends that like screenshot me their aura data and like ask me like what the hell is going on, um, which I should probably start sending out like a like a Venmo link or something. <laughs> but uh, um, there's a lot of more like I don't know, like sleep anxiety that I'm seeing today of like their um, their wearables like basically negging them that they got like poor sleep and then they get like more anxiety about it it makes their sleep worse and they fall into this spiral of poor sleep um you kind of see that along like less so because this is just like less popular but using hrv to modulate training i think all of what people need to realize is that one all of these metrics have like some error built into it they're not perfect metrics like hrv in particular is a particularly noisy metric that you know it is most useful as like measured after sleep or like during sleep. And like, you know, that has a decent baseline as like what you should be doing. However, it's not everything. There is lots of other factors involved and it should be there to provide feedback so that mm -hmm. the athlete or the person in question like knows what to do with that information. Even if it is mm -hmm. not like they shouldn't take it as, as dogma, they should take that as another input. 
And the hard part for anyone, for us, for any coach is like that educational component for your athlete or trainee is to like have them understand what the underlying principles are so that they can make the decisions themselves. And, you know, some people are down to learn all those things. Some people are not. And so how do you communicate that? Well, for someone who really wants a science, like I will tell them exactly what's going on physiologically and why they should make adjustments as they do. And for people who aren't, like sometimes that broad rule of thumb is just helpful. Like if you're not willing to learn what's going on, like then I will say HRV go down, weight go down, HRV go up, weight go up and like just roll with that. You're going to get most of the way. It'll be fine. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I've always thought that it would be more uh, dangerous is probably too strong of a word, but, but, but more possibly detrimental to athletes who get too dependent on that, where it's like, okay, your HRV score, your readiness score is low today, but it, you know, it's game one of the playoffs. Like, what are you going to do? Just take the day off? Like, no, you've got to give everything you got. And so maybe in those scenarios, like relying on it might be a little bit dangerous, although they would probably benefit more from modulating their training a little bit more than an average person who's like super intense is really all not all that intense, but, uh, yeah. and it's more just like, okay, well, is it because <laughs> people talk about overtraining? It's like, you know, the, the three Zumba classes you did is not the reason why you're so exhausted. Like it's probably because you haven't slept or eaten a decent meal all week. It's not <laughs> like you got to understand what the, you know, the scale a little bit here. Uh, but, yeah. but falling into those self-fulfilling prophecies can be, um, a little bit detrimental, I think, at times as well. Yeah. And, you know, the more you go into this world of like having all these metrics available, like people, some people tend to like obsess over them. And, you know, that might be helpful in some cases, but a lot of times, like they're kind of missing the point in that all of these bits are kind of feedback to how you should understand how your body feels. Because if you look at the highest level of performers, they're not relying a ton on like data. Like, yeah, they are, but a lot of them rely on that feel and their instincts of what their body can and can't do that day is incredibly telling of like what's actually going on physiologically because at the highest levels, that slight bit of performance change matters. Like you talk to like elite level fighter pilots, they can tell you if something is like making their blood a little thinner because they can't take as many G forces and like, those little differences, like elite level lifters, things that impact their lifts, like maybe five, 10 pounds, like are pretty significant. And I think people are losing touch with the fact that a lot of this world is not just like data, data, data. It's like understanding what is going on in your body and how to make adjustments. That's what separates in us humans from from machines. I think another huge yeah. aspect is just the psychological aspect of this. You can convince yourself that you're feeling good. Maybe if you're feeling like really horrible, then you know that might be a little bit harder. But if you're feeling like 90% instead of 100, you can probably just convince yourself that you're feeling amazing, that you're doing great, that you, I'll, I'll, I'll make a, a cheeky segue here, that you're not going to get jet lag on your long flight. And you can mm -hmm. sort of mitigate some of that like to a degree. If, it, if you go, go outside and it's cold and you'd be like, no, no, I'm, I'm good in the cold. I never feel cold. And you really say that and really believe it, you'll probably feel less cold than someone who's going yeah. outside and being like, oh my God, I can't believe how cold it is. Uh, fuck winter, all this stuff. Like there is that element to it. And that's not, I don't know that that's data driven. I'm sure as technology gets better, we can somehow find some data that, that leads to that. But for now, like there's that human element as well. But but I do want to talk about the the, the jet lag thing because I know that's something that is that you guys are also working on a lot with uh, with found. So talk a little bit about like what causes jet lag to begin with, and then some of the things that we can start to do to to mitigate this for those of us who who fly quite often. Yeah, 
Sure. So there's like kind of the classic definition of jet lag in which your body's clock exists on a typically slightly longer than 24 hour cycle. It is kind of set each day by um, light. And so that's why morning light is important because getting that morning light sets your clock is like this is sunrise and avoiding light is important because like the longer you see light into the night, it shifts your circadian rhythm. It delays it. Um, and that alignment of circadian rhythm and homeostatic sleep needs. So that sleep pressure is really important for maintaining like that even energy level throughout the day. And when you travel to another time zone, you are traveling, um, you know, your body's clock is stuck at home while you are in Amsterdam. Right. And there are tools set to kind of like mitigate that. However, that's not the full story with jet lag. Uh, the other thing that people don't really take into consideration is that air travel itself is fairly rough on the body. Um, during takeoff and landing, you see a dramatic pressure change within the cabin. Like, yes, the cabin is pressurized, but like it's not pressurized to sea level. Like it's like you're like, you know, climbing an 8000 foot mountain all at once upon takeoff. And like, I don't know if you've ever gotten altitude sickness, but like it's not it doesn't feel great. There's like kind of cascading effects all across your body. Also, uh, I actually came across a paper about this last night, is uh, the CO2 levels uh, within the cabin. Ventilation is different um, when people are boarding and when the plane's taking off with the pressurization system. So you actually see the spike in CO2 levels along with the pressure change. And so this has like large standing like physiological effects. Um, One of the things that we see is this inflammatory effect. And because of this persistent inflammatory effect, along with the sleep deprivation that comes from air travel, you're unable to attack the circadian system. And so by addressing that inflammatory effect, we kind of get a straight shot at the circadian system. And with the tools of algorithmically timed like light and darkness, along with a few other supplements to help with that circadian shift, we're able to do a much larger circadian shift than you would otherwise, as well as deal with to see like effects of air travel. I don't know if you ever like feel groggy or have constipation or joint pain and like ir- irrespective of traveling east and west like sometimes I just fly like you know far like north south and like still feel terrible and that's that's what causes that. So FlyKit addresses kind of all of these like literous effects of air travel along with um, helping with that circadian shift so that you can sleep and be ready to perform at your destination. So this would be most useful for someone who's traveling for a purpose, for a professional reason. If I guess if you're traveling for a vacation, you don't want to, you know, burn three, four, five days of your vacation feeling feeling jet lag. But you know, you might be you might be more excited, or you might just not care because you're not trying to perform. You're just trying to lay on the beach or you know visit tourist attractions or whatever. But if you're you know flying six hours, crossing however many time zones, you are trying to get into a meeting, a boardroom, pitch your company, or you know whatever it is, land a new client you can't just be burning days recovering or if you're an athlete who is traveling for a game you, you've got to perform that night and so how do you yeah. uh you know mitigate the effects of, of flight travel combined with the time change would be massively valuable to to a huge group of people for sure yeah and that's why we offer kind of two separate products one would be the flight athlete pack and so those have tools specifically designed for you to like hit the field right as you land and like be ready to perform or even like, you know, with our military clients go on mission where there is real life and death on the line. Mm -hmm. And then like, even for vacation and leisure travelers, like 
I would pay good money and I assume other people would pay good money. That's why we developed this product to like just have more time on their vacation. Like I don't want to like land in Switzerland and just like have to nap for six hours when I get there because I'm tired. Like I want to be able to enjoy my day. And so, you know, like that is of high value to anyone going on vacation because like you're only there for so for so long and you want to maximize your enjoyment there. So like why not? What are some of the things that that you can tell us, and you know, obviously, you don't have to, to reveal all the all the secrets in the, in the formula, but there's got to be some sort of active component to this as well, where it's not just okay, take this pill, put this light on at this time, and that. There's got to be some. I would imagine there's got to be some. Okay, you must actually do this. There's not just a magic pill, and if I'm wrong, please correct me. But what what are some of the things that someone might be able to do just to start to mitigate this on their own without any tools? So. Part of it is dealing with the inflammatory effects of air travel. So things that you can avoid, like for example, alcohol uh, has lots of effects, but part of that is exacerbating the inflammatory effect upon takeoff. Um, The way you eat. So we generally recommend a higher protein, lower carbohydrate diet, one to kind of mitigate the impact on sleep and make it easier to fall asleep and stay asleep, but to um, reduce the general inflammation that might come with uh, eating garbage while you travel. Uh, the other things would be like being very mindful of light. Like light is a very powerful signal for the human brain. Like if you are, uh, being exposed to a lot of light, like that is, has an energetic, energetic effect. Um, you'll see like, you know, all across the world, especially well, the Northern hemisphere right now, as it gets darker, you see seasonal affective disorder. So people getting that seasonal depression because they are being exposed to less light. Um, and then, let's see, trying to think of the other things around travel. The other thing is like, you know, really basic things like staying hydrated. Like turns out like that's actually super helpful. Um, Who would have beyond thought? that, like the active ingredients within Flykit aren't anything crazy. There aren't like any like super proprietary like pharmaceutical ingredients in there. Yes, we have patents on some of them, but they aren't like you know, some drug that was developed in a secret lab. Anyway, like these are, each of these are tools that address a specific physiological phenomena. And it is the timing combination of which that really make this work. Like we're not trying to sell like a magic pill that like no one else can get anywhere, but ours, our secret is the methodology and the science that addresses these things. And that a lot of times it's boring things placed in optimal ways that is a difference between like performing and not. Very well said. Because I wouldn't, I would be surprised and quite frank, a little bit skeptical if you were saying that, okay, we've got some like magic thing that no one else has discovered. And, you know, if you just take this, then you're going to be good on your plane, no matter how far the flight is, no matter how it's like, well, okay, that's seems a little bit much, right? I think the way I think of it is like, okay, if it's so good, why didn't someone else do this before? And that argument has many flaws with with a lot of things. But I think for some things where people are claiming to have this new secret method or, or, or item to do, it's like, well, okay, are you saying that you are the smartest person in the world at that thing? It's like, eh, probably not. And so, and so, you know, it's just about the education. Like you said, a lot of times, low-hanging fruit. For most people yeah. who are like drinking before they get on the plane, which, you know, do whatever you want. I don't understand the appeal of being drunk or tipsy on a plane, but, you know, people are free to do as they choose. 
if you just be hydrated, you'll probably be way better than if you weren't. And so that won't get you yeah. all the way there, but you're going to be like a, a much, much better off than, than if you were just drinking alcohol on the plane. And then if you couple that with properly timed light exposure, properly timed supplements, then you're going to be way, way better off than, than even just drinking water, right? So sometimes the simplest things that we already know are, are often the best, but they need to be packaged and, and given to us in a way that is understandable and, and useful. Yeah. And like the tools themselves aren't anything crazy. Um, our CEO, Andrew, used to like actually make these programs by hand, but it would take like 30 to 45 minutes per like trip to like actually like hand jam these out there. And so like, that's why we have an algorithm. That's why. I have, and the algorithm itself is able to take in more, like more things about your life. For example, like how much sleep do you need? How much caffeine do you usually take mm. in? Um, how much sleep debt do you like currently have? And take all these factors in to make a better program. But at the end of the day, the actual science of it and the, the principles of what's going on are incredibly simple. And we just make sure to package that in a way that is highly effective and very individualized. But at the end of the day, like, like you can make one of these yourself if you know all the science. We're just trying to like shortcut that for people. But this is kind of the same with anything like you could figure out with the availability of information online. Now you can figure out how to do anything by yourself. I could Google how to build an entire car. I, I can imagine, but like, am I willing to do that? Do I want to spend the time to do that? Like, no, I'm just going, if I need a car, I'm going to buy one. I'm not going to you know, YouTube how to build one from scratch. So same, yeah. same thing here. What another thing yeah. that it takes into consideration, and, and I'm not sure how much of an impact this would have is the, the, the locations that you're flying to and from. And, um, the three things, locations you're flying to and from, layovers, if any, and the length of the flight. Do those things all play a significant role in the protocol that you would use? Oh, absolutely. Like if I'm taking the red eye from LAX to Heathrow, like that's a very different protocol than if I'm taking the daytime flight, which right. like is actually awful for, it's actually a really hard program, but like you can make it work. Uh, and like me going into each of those trips sleep deprived is going to dramatically impact the program as well. And so it takes into account like all the layovers, all the things that you have to do. Even if like, for example, I normally sleep from, uh, let's say like, you know, 11 PM to 7 AM every day, but I need to get on a 6 AM flight. So my sleep is truncated. Like, okay, cool. Like how do I, how do I deal with that along the way? Yeah, that's that's super comprehensive then, because those are the variables that really throw you off and would change. It would be one thing to just say, okay, here is your basic, you know, anti jet lag program. Use it for everyone, no matter what your flight is. That would be like pretty easy. But how do you personalize it to what's going on in your life, what you need to do when you land, what the purpose of your trip is, where you're flying from, where you're flying to, if you have any layovers, food that's available to you, et cetera, et yeah. cetera. So that's that's where the real value comes in is the the the, the personalization of it. Once again. Yeah. And then like, what do I do if my flight's delayed? Um, like, th so there's a lot of things that can happen. And that's the coolest thing about like kind of Fount as a whole is that the underlying model for this, the, the AI that governs um, human sleep and circadian rhythms came from our work with our concierge coaching clients. And we were able to like collect that data, develop that model, develop these interventions. And now we are able to just make that available kind of to everyone. Because we, as like a concierge coaching program, like that actually serves as like probably the best R&D program that I have access to because we have people who 
are we're collecting incredible amounts of data on running a ton of experiments with and are just like down to try things which is awesome and so we're able to make these discoveries and make them available and they're real people experiencing things that happen in real life versus take all this data from all of these different studies which only you know controlled for one variable and across all this thing that's not real life like just Understanding yeah. what people are actually doing, taking that data and then and then extrapolating that is far more accurate than than you can than you could ever have. Yeah, and the incentives within like academic science are very perverse. <laughs> like the incentives to publish, the incentives to have clean data. Like you see a ton of studies like excluding women because like you know hor- um, like hormone cycles actually will throw off your data, so you just like make your life easier by excluding that. Well, yeah. like that's not real life. That means that the data that you have that science does not serve an entire half of the population. And that's why it's important for us to work across all these factors and collect that data to understand that context. Cause otherwise like pure science has all these missing components. And also they don't publish negative findings. Like we have tons of failed experiments and that's like actually very important to us because a failed experiment or a negative effect, like actually tells me a lot more about your physiology than something that like, you know, might help you. Yeah, you have to under, you can understand why something didn't work, right? Even something yeah. I do a lot with my clients is like, okay, we try this protocol. If the whether it be diet, nutrition, or diet or exercise or whatever, and it's like, well, if the results don't make sense, then one then one of two things happened: either the protocol didn't work, or there was something wrong with the way that you followed the protocol. And so then we can mm-hmm. go and tweak those two things. And if we can if we can determine that the protocol was followed correctly, then it's like, all right, well, if it didn't work, then now we've got to figure out why and we have more data to work with versus sometimes things work like by accident in spite of other factors. Again, we see this with athletes all the time. They have a terrible diet, but they happen to be, you know, super strong, super fast, super good at their sport. It's like, well, you know, the reason that Usain Bolt is the fastest man in the world is not because he was eating chicken nuggets at the Olympics. It's because of all these other things. And he just happened to also be doing that. That's probably not yeah. the reason. That's not a repeatable thing that you should do. Right. But yeah, more yeah. data. Like it reminds like. me of like one of my old rugby teammates, like he was the fastest guy on the pitch, like hands like glue, like incredible. It's ripping cigarettes on the sideline. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there was a story. I think last week there was a a man who was uh, the Chinese guy, Chinese that guy ran running the marathon. Yeah, running marathon, just like yeah. smoke chain smoking cigarettes. And it's like, okay, he wasn't breaking world records and whatever, but you know, that's still there's still something there. That's not something that someone should strive to do, but it's still working in spite of what he's doing, not because of what he's doing. So yeah. always, and a lot of things that like elite athletes are doing are like kind of in spite of themselves, yeah. and like or it just happens to work with like you know back to that genetic selection is a thing um which is really funny because like korean parents like don't understand this concept so like you'll see a lot of korean parents like driving their kids towards swimming and basketball because like swimming and basketball has a lot of tall people swimming and basketball must make you taller <laughs> it's like inverse <laughs> yeah and it's like, oh, yeah, like, no, those are selected as children because they happen to be good at those. Yeah. Yeah. There's a huge yeah. thing even with uh, uh, like with athletes that they're born earlier in the year. So if the yeah. sport, you know, follows uh, the regular calendar, more athletes are born January to March because those kids happen to be because they're, you know, nine months older than their same year counterparts. They're a yeah. little bit bigger when they're kids. So they're selected to be in the elite yeah. program on the rep teams, competitive teams, and then they just get put through the system. It's not that they were some mm-hmm. phenom at the age of seven. They were just taller than a seven-year-old who was born in December. 
And so, like, yeah, that like gets, those 10 months at seven years old, like, you know, that's like 13% of their life. Exactly. So well, that's an impressive, yeah. that's some impressive math right there. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's those little factors that really, you know, start to determine things. And then we find ways to optimize things after that. But if you don't get the right start, right, the right push, then it's very hard to become, to become elite at, at things after that. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it comes down to like understanding those factors that went into it. And I think that's what's driven my path across like sports and performance and technology is like the need to understand the why so that I can apply better principles. Yeah. And then extrapolate that across everything, which is yeah the best way to do it, I think. Yeah. Clayton, this has been uh, this has been a good time. I appreciate you uh, sharing your time with us. Is there anything that you want to leave the people with here in closing before just kind of rattling off your, your contact info for for Fountain and yourself? Yeah, so um, you can find Fount at uh, fount.bio. Um, you'll also found, find Flykit at fount.bio slash flykit or flykit.com. Uh, we highly recommend you know trying that out for your upcoming trips, but also... You know, we have a money back guarantee. So like anything, it's worth experimenting with. And we can make sure that experimentation has a relatively low personal cost. Uh, we just want to make sure that people find the tools that work for them. And so if you're also interested in the coaching program, um, that's what we'll do for you. We don't try to pretend that we have all the answers, but we are the best at helping you find those answers for yourself. Very well said. I will put all of that in the in the show notes, found.bio, not .com and found.bio slash flykit um, for, for all the stuff that Clayton's been talking about. Clayton, do you share stuff on your personal social media as well that you want people to know about, or should we just leave that leave that personal? Um, but you leave that one. I, I, no problem. I have, uh, <laughs> I have like a circus Instagram that very much isn't, uh, you know, the usual found brand, but uh, if you are interested in finding me, I'm the clay method uh, at on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Clayton, thank you. Thank you so much. I, uh, I appreciate you very much. Um, thanks for sharing all of this with us. Everybody give Clayton a follow, give Fount a follow and try out their products, especially if you're someone who travels often and especially for work, family time, for any reason, uh, you'll be interested in the fly kit. Follow the podcast on whatever platform you follow on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, all that stuff. Daniel yours on social media as well. Be a good person, go outside, take your shoes off, and we'll see you next time.